Empire. Are you ready for some football where the headgear is personalized? Certain playing positions tend to wear different face guard styles than others, so you see those differences already. But, you know, there may be other characteristics about the helmet's size and shape that look different from one playing position to another in the future. That's Thad Eyde, the Senior Vice President of Research and Product Innovation at Riddell, where there is no such thing as a preseason. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. Safety has become the existential issue for many contact sports, but none more so than football. Riddell has been in the business of trying to protect heads in the sport for generations, so we're going to listen into their helmet communications with that eye to see where it's all going from here. And later, James Rundle from the Wall Street Journal joins us to discuss how sports leagues are fighting off hackers in this digital age. But first, the future is now. So by now you know that gambling is going to take over sports content, but how and where and when are still very interesting issues. David Purdom from ESPN covers the gambling industry for the network, and he joins us now. How are you, David? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I don't really know where to begin, but I will start with a recent development that you wrote about, which is a VR game that you can bet on through the NBA. Can you kind of describe what's happening there? Yeah, it's called the NBA Last 90. It's basically a game that is built around league highlights. Um, this company that puts it together uses those highlights, stitches them together from various years um, to kind of produce a story, an end-of-a-game type situation. The end of the game is completely fictitious. You are allowed to bet on it. What happens? Who scores the first point? Who wins the game? How many points are scored in that final minute? They use a random new, uh, number generator, similar to like what's used in, in slot machine, to kind of produce the result. So it really is a NBA slot machine in a way. Huh. There is no skill to handicap it or anything like that. So they're using it to kind of target the uh, European market where virtual betting is very popular. NBA games, you know, start over here at 7 o'clock. They don't start till 1 or 2 in the morning over in the U.K., for example. Uh, so they're going to try to see if this will generate some exciting um, what else in this type of realm are you hearing about? What other sports are jumping into that type of content? I would expect MLS may be the next sports league here in the U.S. to get involved. Virtual betting in the U.K. on soccer uh, is very popular, along with horse racing. You know, when the NBA started looking at this a few years ago, uh, they were very surprised to see the popularity. And when I went back and looked at the gaming uh, numbers from the U.K., I was too there's more money bet on this virtual games like this uh, than there is on golf, which, you know, the UK is the home of golf. I thought uh, that was very surprising to me. So there is a lot of interest in this. And building off that with the soccer interest, I would think MLS may be the next one to get a ball. Maybe Major League Baseball. I'm not sure they're quite there yet. Let's get into some of the bigger questions here that are out there about this. Um, In-game broadcasts for sports in America that will include a... Do you think ever the ability to actually bet and B, at least acknowledge the ongoing options that change as a game progresses? So I think we're going to have alternate feeds. I think there will always be your standard uh, NFL game broadcast, baseball broadcast that we have now. 
I think there might be a secondary feed that will be more focused on sports betting. Uh, the Cubs have come out and said that they're interested in this. Whether they will actually be able to on the screen and hit a button while you're watching the game to bet, still up in the air. That seems like a long ways away for me. But, yeah, I do think we're going to start seeing whether you're going to have a choice of how you want to watch the game and how it's broadcast, whether you want to have more betting content involved, more statistics involved, or if you're more used to the standard traditional game broadcast. How do the leagues deal with the fact that not every state's going to legalize it? Not easy, and it's not easy for the big media companies, also as well. I mean, you're, you're, right now we have uh, eight states, including Nevada, that have operating sports books. Eight more have already uh, put, got themselves into position uh, to offer sports betting here in the next year. But that's still only 16. Um, that's far less than half of the uh, of the nation. So it's very difficult for the leagues. Um, the NBA and baseball have been at the forefront of this. They are kind of leading the charge. Uh, NHL has embraced it as well, maybe a, to a later, lesser extent. And then you would have the NFL followed by the NCA, who is still adamantly opposed to this. Everybody's just kind of trying to figure it out from the leagues to the media company. So I want to go back to the, the second screen experience and, and what you think the future of sports broadcasting may end up looking like. Um, I would assume that the leagues believe that there's going to be a heavy demand for this in some way shape or form um do you agree that that demand exists from how you're monitoring it from your point of view i would say the demand is probably overestimated at this time i think this is new this is interesting there is revenue involved in it everybody's trying to figure out how to get a hold of that revenue um, but this has happened in other countries, too. Uh, Australia, when they legalized sports betting around 2000, there was this big push. All of a sudden, you started seeing advertisements of sports books. All of a sudden, you had an odds maker in the uh, broadcast booth of, of rugby games. And it really kind of almost left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouth. There was a backlash to it. Uh, there was also a spike in problem gambling, people identifying sports betting as a problem for them. So there was this big political backlash, and now we're seeing it in the U.K. too, where they're really trying to restrict advertising. So I hope that uh, the leagues, the broadcasters, really take a big look at this and make sure that they're not over-aggressive with it. I think this is something that we can be conservative with. Move slowly, figure out the best approaches, and then go forward. Um, Let's talk about integrity fees for a moment. Um, I was at a NASCAR event over the weekend, and I was talking to some of the people in in their broadcast operations about gambling, and they are open to it. And they do have literal proprietary information that nobody else has on their vehicles, and they can determine how they want to disseminate that type of information and how that could help shape someone's ideas of gambling on the sport. These other sports, I have a hard time buying that they are able to hold a different level of statistical relevance that others can't monitor. So how do they control what they want in terms of integrity fees? You're you're spot on there. It's been a difficult argument for the leagues to make. We're talking about an integrity fee, which would be paid from bookmakers. Uh, based on the amount wagered on the individual sports, the bookmakers would pay those sports. Uh, basically, the fee is about 0.25% of the amount wagered on the games uh, right now. Haven't gotten anywhere. No state has uh, legalized this yet. And just because of what you're saying right there, what are the leagues going to bring to the table that would be worth paying that 0.25%? And they haven't been able to make that case yet. Like you said, NASCAR has 
some proprietary data that if they were able to figure out how to use that data to produce wagers that were popular enough for people to bet, yeah, of course, maybe they should deserve a, a cut of that. The thing is, when we start talking about that, people just want to bet on the end of the race, or they want to bet on who, which racer beats which racer. The, the, the you know high tech individual moments that they've been propping up, you know who goes the fastest and stuff. People just don't really bet on that. The majority of in-game, in-race wagering remains on the winner, and until we somehow gravitate towards uh, these other little, you know, little tiny micro bets, I guess, uh, on events. Um, it's going to be a tough, tough case to make because we're just not that interested in it at this time. Yeah, I, I know. I just, as a golf fan, and you mentioned golf, the, the idea of sitting there and having the opportunity to bet on whether somebody is going to make that putt, a 30-foot putt, and they're placing now odds on it, or whether this person is going to get up and down, or whether this person is going to win this particular hole over that competitor, that fascinates me. Um, but I also find it very interesting that you say that all of the virtual stuff is garnering more interest in terms of actual bets than some of the real competitions that are out there. That was shocking to me. Uh, I've got the numbers here in front of me. $770 million was bet on virtual sports. Huh. That's all the sports wars racing soccer in the U.K., and that was last year in 2018. That's three times more than it was wagered on golf. I, I always assume golf is very popular over there from the Open Championship we're getting ready to have to the European Tour. I'm told that my expectations of the popularity of golf were, were off in the U.K. a little bit, and this seems to, to represent that. But, you know, I can't ever imagine that. Golf is pretty popular over here in terms of betting. It's not in maybe close to as much as wagered on football or basketball or baseball. But if you get past there, it's right in the mix of those other ones, probably right in the mix with hockey. All right, I'll let you go with this, and um, and if you're uncomfortable answering this, I I completely understand, but I am curious. You do work for what is the biggest sports broadcasting company in the world. Um, How are they handling disseminating gambling information now, and and how do you see them disseminating it in the future? Well, I can only talk from the editorial perspective. And, you know, our section that covers sports betting is called ESPN Chalk. Um, It launched in 2014 when, when I started at ESPN, and it's been a constant discussion how... Uh, you know how much should uh, gambling be included in the overall coverage of ESPN? And as you know, ESPN has a big pie of coverage. Sports betting is always kind of kind of be a small sliver. It may grow a little bit, but in the overall grand scheme, it's going to be probably a small sliver of things. So, while that said, it's very popular. I mean, some of the stories. Uh, betting angles of stories, for example, on the Masters when Tiger Woods, there was a big better that won like a million dollars when Tiger Woods won the Masters. Well, those stories did more traffic, generated more traffic than like the game stories or, you know, the recap of the Masters. So the popularity and interest of sports betting is there. How you go about covering it, it's a, it's a day-by-day discussion. It really is. David Purdom from ESPN. Thanks so much for joining us. You got it. Thanks for having me. Up next, Thad Eyed from Riddell on the future of the helmet and what it means for the future of football. Our guest this week is Thad Ide, the Senior Vice President of Research and Product Innovation at Riddell, which has been making football helmets, among other items, since football mattered in the United States. And now they're trying to make ones that will allow the sport to thrive for generations to come. Hi, Thad. How are you? 
I'm great. How you doing, Brian? Great. Um, let's talk about technology and football. Can you kind of give me just a general overview of what you've seen over the last five, ten years with all the concerns that have come with the sport and how to make it safer? Oh, I think over the t- past five, ten, even twenty years, you've seen uh, an acceleration in you know the pace of innovation around head protection and and awareness of of head injuries, concussions in football. Um, you know that's certainly accelerated in the past couple of decades for sure. And so, what does your company want to try to do about it? Well, our our company is committed to. Uh, making football safer, and we approach it uh, from several different angles. Um, one way is to be on the cutting edge forefront of uh, protective head equipment and helmets um, by following the latest uh, research into materials and engineering and design and uh, you know, testing and uh, understanding how our helmets are performing on the field and continuously questing to make them better. That's one way we approach it. Um, another way we approach it is to uh, is to invest in smart helmet technology. And we have uh, more than 15 years ago invested in uh, head impact, helmet-based head impact sensing and uh, and reporting technology. And that data we've used over the years to inform uh, how to design better helmets. I read you guys are, are working on trying to get position-specific helmets. Um, why? Why do you think that is necessary? You can imagine that the types of impacts that players see at different positions on the field and their head impact exposure at, uh, for playing different positions on the field looks very differently from one player to another and one position type to another. Um, and it actually looks very differently based on skill level, too. Like younger players uh, see different types of head impact exposure than high schoolers than college players. Um, you know, but a, a quarterback or a skill position player on the field sees uh, very different numbers, very different magnitudes, very different directions from which the uh, from which the impacts occur than say interior linemen or linebackers. Not that I think this should matter, but but I know it does. And we've seen this as a fan in just watching. We've seen the helmets change their look. Um, if you go further in this direction, will the helmets all look different on all the different players when they're playing? Um, you know, it's possible. We still want the teams to, to look like teams and look like teammates on the field. But, there, you know, there, there may be characteristics of helmets that, that look different depending upon, you know, the playing position on the field. I mean, they already look different because certain playing positions tend to wear different face guard styles than others. So you see those differences already. But, you know, there may be other characteristics about the helmet's size and shape that look different from one playing position to another in the future. What are the leagues saying back to you? What do they want? What are their goals? Well, I, I think the leagues are committed, whether you know that's the National Football League or you know the NCAA and its various conferences, or you know even the National High School Federation. They're all committed to you know creating as safe an environment as possible for their players. Um, so you know they are encouraging uh, the head protection companies to continue to improve their product, and you know they're give, giving information that can help us do that. Um, are their expectations reasonable? Do they want you, are they forcing you to attempt to make equipment that can limit the type of injuries 
to the degree that they'd like to see them limited? Um, well, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know what their specific goals are. I mean, it, it may be zero injuries, which you know, that's that's probably impossible to happen. Right. There's no such thing as a concussion-proof football helmet, um, and I don't know what technology would exist that, uh, you know, that would allow that to happen. But um, you know, the, the the leagues are are dangling carrots in front of us, and you know, we're, you know, wh- whether they were or not. We're committed to player safety and head protection, so we would be pushing ourselves in that direction anyways. Fully personalized helmets, what what exactly does that mean? I think five years from now, seven years from now, it's going to be very difficult to purchase a football helmet that doesn't have smart technology inside, you know, impact sensing technology that can, you know, guide the coaches and guide the player to play better. Um, and reduce overall head impact exposure for the player. So, you know, once that happens and once you have um, you know, impact sensing technology in every helmet, you know, you can make suggestions for, you know, how the helmet can best fit, what types of configurations might best match up with a particular player's playing style, and, you know, configure a helmet that is for your, play, your playing style, your head shape, your playing style. Um, when you say play better, what, what did you mean by that, that you could design a helmet that would help a player literally play the game better? Well, I mean, there's a lot of ways that that, that could happen. One, you know, one is to be as comfortable as possible and as confident as possible in your playing style and not be distracted by your helmet. But, you know, another way you can play better is to, you know, reduce your risk of injury so that your, you know, your chances of being on the field are better. And some of the, the smart technologies that we have now, uh, a new one that we introduced last year called Insight Training Tool, is a, uh, it's a web portal-enabled uh, technology that allows coaches or athletic trainers to log in and review um, the types of impacts that players are seeing on the field over the course of a week or a season. Um, and it, it advises them of training opportunities so that, uh, you know, they can coach the player to reduce atypical head impact exposures and, and reduce the risk of injury, hopefully. Um, so what, if they, they get into this training tool, what would they find in there and then how would they implement it? Well, they might see, um, they might see uh, impact alerts pop up or they might see training opportunities pop up. You know, impact alerts are... Um, you know, high-intensity impacts on the field that uh, that create an alertable event for the sideline that, that doesn't diagnose a concussion, of course, but it just tells the sideline that something happened on the field that was atypical for a particular player, and they might want to observe the player, ask the player some questions next time they come to the sideline. But the training opportunities are kind of a more a more unique, deeper dive into the analytic side of this, um, you know, they might tell a coach that during a particular drill that you didn't even think was a contact drill, there was a significant amount of head impact exposure going on for certain players. And, you know, you could take a look into what was going on with that position group during that drill uh, and maybe coach the players better so that they don't have head contact when they shouldn't have head contact. Um, you guys have a thing called the Team of the Future, which is uh, featuring Peyton Manning, the future Hall of Fame quarterback. It's part of a smarter football program. Can you kind of tell us what that is all about? Um, sure. Uh, you know, Smarter Football is is a, a grassroots program that Riddell 
uh, Riddell has had for several years now, and its goal is to recognize and reward teams across the country uh, for impl- implementing what we think of as smarter tactics, both on and off the field in their program. Um, and that might be committing to smart helmet technology or committing to, you know, lower contact in practices, you know, things like that, uh, committing to the newest and best equipment, um, and, you know, things like that that uh, uh, the, the, they might get grants for, equipment grants that Riddell provides every year. And Team of the Future, what exactly um, is that? Well, Team of the Future uh, this year is the Peoria High School Lions, and that's just a way of recognizing a team that kind of symbolizes to us the new era of smarter football, uh, playing the game differently, uh, you know, uh, and, and committing to the things that embody smarter football, like safer playing practices, um, things like that. Um, I, I got to tell you, I went on your guys' website. I hadn't been on there in a long time, and it, it's like walking through the Hall of Fame. I, it really, it's wild to look at, like through the years of, of what your company has has worked with. Oh yeah, we like to think that you know every innovation in football head protection, especially that's come along in the last you know eighty years that Riddell's been in the head protection business, and you know ninety years that Riddell's been in business. Uh, you know, Riddell's been there with. You know, we we are deeply embedded in the game of football, and the game of football is deeply embedded in us. Um, I'll leave you with this. I, I just want to kind of gauge your optimism for the sport moving forward, since it, it is your business to protect the head, and it is one of the threats to the sport's longevity. And clearly, it is still the favored sport, at least in this in this country. What is your optimism that there will technologies will come along to make this game clearly not. 100% safe, but as safe as possible so that it can endure for time for the fans. I'm very optimistic about the future of the sport of football. Um, I think football has evolved in the past, and the equipment that's used in football has, has evolved in the past, and it'll continue to evolve. Um, you know, there are a lot of great technologies right in front of us, you know, whether it's, you know, Riddell's precision fit technologies that, you know, we create helmets that match the surface of, of players' heads or the smart helmet technologies uh, that will shape how data is used to inform protection in the future. Uh, you know, all of that's right in front of us, and I'm, I'm very optimistic about the future of the sport. And if you want to see the, the coolest new one, it's called the Speedflex Precision Diamond. It'll be worn widely this year in the 2019 season from Riddell. Thad Eide is there, Senior Vice President of Research and Product Innovation. Thanks for joining us, Thad. Thank you. Up next. You think there are covert ops in Foxborough messing with the coach quarterback helmet communication? Wait until you hear what many sports leagues are trying to ward off. This is the Future Sport Podcast. The NBA is cracking down on hackers during big events like their recent draft. And it's not to stop the Woj bombs of revealing picks before they take place, but those who might want that information for very different purposes. James Rundle from the Wall Street Journal joins us now. Hey, James, how are you? I'm very good. How are you? What are the precautions the NBA is taking these days with their information? Yeah, so it's kind of two dimensions to this. The NBA has been driving a top-down 
strategy uh, for a number of years now to kind of bring all of the teams up to a basic level of cybersecurity, and it does this through a number of means. It goes in and analyzes the network security at teams, it engages in education exercises, and also organizes inter-team cooperation. So everybody is at a kind of common standard. And then the second level um, is at a, a team level, uh, so they can go beyond what the MBA does, and they can bring in outside contractors to do more advanced cybersecurity defense work as well. And the concern is what? Well, the concern is in a number of areas, really. You have a weird situation in sports where NBA teams have all of the cybersecurity concerns of a major retailer, um, plus they have these tempole events like the finals and the draft, uh, and the added pressure of legalization from sports betting as well. Um, it's really a, a nexus of events that's driving cybersecurity. So you are trying to guard against your customer information being stolen, as we saw happened with the Pacers earlier this year. You're also guarding against your trade secrets being um, compromised or exfiltrated. And we've seen that in other sports most recently in 2016 with the St. Louis Cardinals and the Houston Astros in baseball. And then you're also trying to guard your systems against people who might be using this uh, to make big money on wages. I'll get to the gambling in a moment. I want to go back to, to the Cardinals and Astros uh, case that you mentioned. That was essentially an insider move, that somebody from one organization was stealing information from the other to try to benefit them. What you're talking about, though, is maybe not necessarily what's happening between the NBA teams, but outside forces that may want this data for, forget gambling for a moment. I'm not sure what the other purposes may be. Yeah, sure. Uh, as I said, you know, the, if you're... Uh, if you look at organized crime, they're very interested, obviously, in the credit card details and social security numbers of the large number of fans that um, these teams hold through their oh. online retail operations and their physical presence as well. The actual positioning information and the strategy for draft picks and what have you is not necessarily going to be that valuable until you bring the gambling dimension into it. So let's talk about the gambling here. Um, what concern does the NBA have as it proliferates throughout the United States and gets legalized in various jurisdictions that, that this is going to be a problem with their information? Yeah, that information would be hugely valuable to anybody. Um, I mean, you're already seeing the kind of amount of money that can be um, generated through this activity, even though only a handful of states have fully legalized sports betting so far. So one of the lobby groups of the gaming industry estimated that uh, U.S. Citizens wagered $8.5 billion through both legal and illegal means on the March Madness tournament, for instance. So these are pretty pretty huge sums of money that we're talking about. And as states legalize, that's only set to grow. So any kind of inside information that either an individual could access or more likely um, someone engaged in organized criminal activity to place wages um, on these events would be extremely valuable. And let's talk about technology for a moment. So 5G is coming. Um, and what is the concern there with the upgrade in the tech as they try to protect their interests? I think 5G is not just, you know, concerns around that for cybersecurity aren't just limited to baseball, but it's a, a concern across all industries. The, the problem being that when you have this ability to transmit data at the speeds that 5G offers, it opens the attack surface uh, and it opens different avenues of exfiltrating data. Um, you're not just looking at sort of fixed defenses against the network and hackers trying to break in, but potentially every cellular device people carry it could be an attack vector as well and could transmit it at speed. Who knew? It used to be that they would just have their information in binders and nobody was allowed to take it out of the building. <laughs> we're in a different yeah, space. Amazed, yeah, yeah we are have chief information officers, but uh, you know, here we go. That's the world we live in. It is the world we live in. James Rundle from the Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much, James. Thank you. That will do it for this episode. Remember, the future is now. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein.